All right, turn with me over to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. This is everybody's favorite genealogy. The other one was not favorite, but this one is favorite. The one from Cain, yeah, that one's not so good. This one is a much better genealogy. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, you got to be kidding me. I know you like this verse-by-verse thing, but this is taking it to a new level. Okay, we're not going to cover every name, but there's some themes in here that I want to I pull out. So here's what we, we have when we go to genealogies. In genealogies, you have a list of names that are ultimately leading us to the name above every name, which is Jesus. And so we follow these genealogies. Well, what's the point of that? Because how do you know Jesus is the right guy? How do you know he's the Messiah? How do you know he's the one that was promised? And one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways you know he is the one is because he's a descendant that has come from Adam through Seth, through Noah, to Abraham, through Judah, through David, and then eventually through Mary and Joseph, and he is the Messiah. It's a way to say this really is the one. So it serves that important uh, uh, proof for us that he is the Messiah. But in going through the genealogies, you pick up some interesting information I think you're going to see, and we get principles by which we can live our lives. We see examples of some of these individuals. So, um, yeah, we're going to go through the genealogy here, and we're calling it a genealogy of hope. Think we need some hope in the world today? I think we do. And, and we have that hope, and the hope is in Jesus Christ. And we need to let people know that he is there to lighten their load. And to, uh, he's a, a, a yoke and a burden you can take on that is easy and light and he will give rest. And there are so many things that are causing us to groan in this present hour. You can look at the finances and there are some that are groaning. I mean, I hope you, you're praying for and your heart fills all these businesses that are being shuttered. And you go through and people invest it and you, you know they're crying out. They poured everything into it. The, the racial tensions, um, tensions within the body of Christ over uh, different kinds of issues. But certainly um, one that has been a dividing factor is you know, one church decides to meet, one church decides not to meet. The church that decides to meet says, we do this because we're faithful to God. The church that doesn't meet says, we want to be faithful to obey the government and, and not you know, care, you know, act as if we don't care about people. Oh, the church has all kinds of opinions. Who's right? Well, we'll let the Lord sort that one out. We've sought the Lord, and this is what we feel led to do without drawing any conclusions about what others are doing. We answer to God for ourselves. So, yeah, we need some hope. And in this genealogy, they were looking for some hope as well. And we're going to see that, and that Jesus is the one to whom we look. We began looking at verses 1 through 5, and we come with a review of Adam. The genealogy of Adam is what we're going to be considering. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word that can also be translated mankind. And that day God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them Adam, or mankind, in the day they were created. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So this is his third son. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons and daughters in all the days uh, that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. That's a long time. 
but he's not the oldest guy in the Bible. We'll come up against him in just a moment. But how do we understand these long lives? I mean, wow. I mean, 930 years. Is this for real? Or is this like you know Hebrew poetry? And it's just talking about they lived a long time. Um, or these one guy suggested that these years should be translated as months. However, if that's the case, then Seth was... <laughs> When he had his first child, was eight years and nine months old. So you got some problems with that one too, right? I, I do think these are literal years and getting a description because when God created man, he did not create man to die. He created man to live forever. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. And we're going to see a lot of death in this chapter. So if they wouldn't have eaten of that, they could have eaten of the tree of life and, and just lived forever. And that, the text bears that out. So from a creation standpoint, that makes sense. Um, so how do we understand these long lives? Well, God wanted man to live forever. How they ended up having shorter lives, well, there's a couple of suggestions. One is that um, the canopy of water that was around the earth before the great flood um, absorbed a lot of the um, uh, cosmic rays and the uh, ultraviolet um, radiation that was hitting the earth and breaks down the human body, and so this provided protection. There's no biblical proof for that. We know there was a canopy, and that's gone, so maybe that is it. Another view is that, well, when God created man, he was perfect, and the genetic code was all intact, and then over time, uh, and through generations, it begins to wear down, and it's less perfect. Mutations, harmful mutations take place, and people don't live as long. And that certainly is, is part of it, could be a part of the answer. But here's what we know for sure. Genesis 6.3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. You know why I think that the years in chapter 5 are real? It's because God shortens them in chapter 6. And the only way to understand 120 years is being shortened if you are shortening them from a great length of time. So just the flow of the, of the, the text makes sense. And God does shorten the years after, after the flood. And we'll see that in the, in the coming weeks as we go through. So yeah, Adam is uh, 930 years old. He does end up dying. But I think one thing to keep in mind is from Adam to the flood, which is what we're going to find as we move into chapter 6, from Adam to the flood was 1,656 years. You can go do the math, make up your own table with the genealogy. But um, that, that's kind of, a, I think, an interesting number to, I'm not saying there's some kind of deep spiritual significance. It's just that's how long um, it was from Adam to the flood. As we move on in verses 6 through 8, we come to, Adam's third son, Seth, who was a, Seth was a son of promise. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and there it is again. He died. Something that's new, something that hadn't been happening. But now they are dying of old age and other causes, but... Death is now a part of the human experience. Seth, as I said, the third son of Adam and Eve. Remember, the other two that came before were Cain and Abel. Abel was a worshiper of God. Cain was jealous because of the approval that he was given to Abel in his worship. And so to deal with that jealousy, he 
killed him. And then God drove Cain from his presence. And there was an ungodly line that you can read of um, in chapter 4, um, verses uh, 16 to the end. And you'll read some similar names. They're not the same people, just, just like today. They used some of the same names. But when Seth, when, when Cain um, and Abel died, there was a, a crisis. Like, wait a minute, Abel is dead, and Cain is sent from the presence of the Lord. And yet, in Genesis 3.15, it's promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and would deliver them from the curse. How is that going to happen now? And then she had another son, and his name was Seth. And so, and Seth became the promise that there would be a deliverer, that there would come one that would, would, would break that curse. Now, she thought, from the text, it seems like Eve thought it was going to be Seth. Now, it was going to be a descendant of Seth. But we see that the hope was alive in, in Eve, um, and we're going to see that it's alive in some of these other people that we're going to come across in this genealogy. So we follow Seth because he becomes the one through which Jesus Christ will eventually descend from Seth to Noah to Abraham to Judah um, to David and so on. Um, so this is Seth, the son of promise. In verses 9 through 20, and I'm not going to read all those verses. Um, and they, It's not because I don't care about these guys. It's just for the sake of time. But there are four generations. You have Enosh, you have Canaan, Mahalalel, and Jared. And you can go study and do the years with them. As well, But we come to verse 21 through 24. We come to um, an interesting man in the genealogy. And his name was Enoch. Some of you are probably familiar with Enoch. He's referred to, and we'll read these references in just a moment, in the New Testament as well. But Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Well, that reads very differently than the other six or seven names that we've come across that all end with, and he died. But Enoch doesn't die. He's one of the only men in the, in the scriptures, Elijah, another, that did not face a physical death. And so they had a unique experience. He is spared from death. Um, what, there's two phrases really that I want us to, to zero in on. And the first one is, there in verse 24, Enoch walked with God. This is a metaphor. The walking with God is a metaphor for intimacy and obedience and fellowship with God. So we talk about our walk with God, which is a way to make reference to our experience with Him. And Enoch was one that walked with God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, that God came walking in the cool of the day and asked, Adam, where are you? So there was this walking with God that Adam and Eve had before the fall. But Enoch is one that is walking with God. And he's fellowshipping with him. And he's hearing from him. And he is a worshiper. He's one that enjoys communion with his maker. His name means dedicated one or consecrated one. Now, I want to say this about names in the Bible. It is hard to nail down what a name means. Sometimes it's easy, and you can find a consensus among scholars. But I am telling you that when you, you can go to four different highly regarded 
um, Hebrew uh, dictionaries, and you will find different names. So these names are old, and so sometimes it's hard to pin them down exactly what they mean. Um, some have gone through this, and I really want this to be true, I'll have to tell you. In chapter 5, and they give a meaning to every single name. And um, as you put the names and their meanings together, it just reads like the gospel story. It's really amazing. The problem is, it's really hard to verify that. And when you start to go through and, and really dig into all their names, it's like, man, I can't, I've opened up, you know, five Hebrew dictionaries and not one of them is saying that that's what that name means. Somebody said it somewhere along the way. So you've got to be careful is all I'm saying. So I've only, I'm only providing you the names, uh, some of the names that I've, that I've looked up and searched. I looked up every one of these, but I'm only going to zero in on a few. Um, so some would say that Enoch uh, means trained one, but uh, most agree that it means dedicated one or consecrated one. Dedicated one. Consecrated one. And he walked with God. That was his dedication. His consecration was he was set apart to meet with God. What are you set apart for? All of us have a thing that we're living for. All of us have something that we're dedicated to. Every one of us. There's not anybody in here, there's not any human being on the earth that does not have something for, that, that is top priority in our life. For Enoch, it was to commune with God. And it was to fellowship with him and to walk with him. Enoch's name reminds me of an exhortation that Paul gave to young pastor Timothy that I think is a worthy exhortation to all of us. It's in 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 16. And he says, Till I come, give attention to reading and exhortation to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of my hands, uh, the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. What? Reading, exhortation, doctrine. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He's saying be dedicated. Be consecrated. Give yourself completely and totally to the word of God, the study of God, and instructing others. I think that is a, a good word for all of us to hear that we must be consecrated to walk with God and pay attention to the word of God and to teaching and have a good influence upon other people for the kingdom of God. And doing this will save ourselves. We're going to protect ourselves and you must understand that there, you have an enemy, I have an enemy, and what that enemy wants to do is he wants to destroy your faith. He wants to wipe it out. That you can be another name on the ash heap of those who used to believe in God, who used to follow the Lord, who used to be on fire for God, that used to really be dedicated. That's what he wants to do. You have an enemy that wants to destroy you. And all we have to do is take five seconds and look around and see that he's doing a pretty good job. Well, what do we do? Do we, do we wring our hands in fear and despair and, oh, no, no, we don't do that. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus has overcome this world, and we that have faith in Jesus will also overcome. But we must walk with God. We must commune. This, the closer we stay with God, the safer we are in our walk. In doing this, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. What is it, I said, that you're dedicated to? 
If you think by reason of energy, passion, and time, what would you say you're consecrated for? Now listen, I realize a lot of you are going to say, I spend most of my time working, actually. Okay, are you doing that as unto the Lord? Are you consciously working as unto the Lord? I'm going to school, that's my number one thing I'm doing. Are you doing that as unto the Lord? Are you redeeming that time and is your, your studies going for the glory of God? Whatever it is that you may be doing, we need to do all unto the name of the Lord. So important for us. You know, it was said by um, oh, Sanders, Oswald Sanders, not Chambers, Oswald Sanders. He says, all of us want to be close to God, but not all of us have chosen to be close to God. All of us have chosen to be as close with God as we are. But probably most of us in here would all love to say, I am as close with God as I possibly can. How many of you would like to be closer to God than you are right now? Yeah, my hand will go up. I would like to be closer. So what's keeping us back? It's our choice. We have developed the relationship. Moses, outside of the new covenant, outside of the Spirit of God dwelling within him as you have it, he was a friend with God and he saw God as one that sees somebody face to face. He had a deep, intimate relationship. And there are circles of, of a relationship. You have a stranger, if you can call that a relationship. You have an acquaintance. You have a friend. You have a good friend. You got a best friend. You, know, you have family relationships. You have a relationship with your spouse. And all these, um, you know, obviously I'm speaking in broad terms, are deeper relationships. But you got to make the choice. You know, can you be best friends with everybody? No, you can't. You know, you're good for a couple of people and that's about it. There's not enough, we don't have enough bandwidth to do that. And then, you know, when you want to, you know, have your family and be involved with your family and you have a, a relationship with your wife, I mean, you can have friends. Don't get me wrong. I, I encourage you to have friends. Be friendly. But it's not the way the world paints it out. There's not enough time in your life to do that. You're gonna, if, you, if you have like a ton of, you know, I have 10 best friends, you probably don't have much responsibility right now or you're forsaking some things that you're responsible for. You've got to choose. You've got to choose. What have you chosen as it relates to walking with God? Have you chosen to be a dedicated one, a consecrated one, one that is meditating and giving yourself entirely to this pursuit? If you do, it will be evident to all. People around you will know. They'll see. You're drawing closer to God. You'll see it. You'll know it. Now, it might be a hard thing to, to take a snapshot every, every day and measure. But, you know, look back in six months, nine months. Look back. Think back five years ago. Where were you in your walk with the Lord five years ago? You're like, well, that's not a good snapshot because I'm not as close today as I am. Well, then that's instructive, isn't it? There's something we need to do to make some changes. So he was one that spent time with God. He abided with the Lord. And I, I would encourage you to do that, to spend time. Jesus said that he and the Father wanted to come and make your heart his home, that he might manifest himself to you. Think about that. It is a stated goal, and the objectives to reach that goal have been accomplished. Jesus died on the cross, and he sent his spirit to live within you, that he might manifest. When's the last time God has manifested himself to you in the quietness of your, of your life? Well, I just, I'm, I'm not like that, Troy. I just can't sit down. I can't spend time focusing on things. I've got to just keep moving. I've got to keep moving. And I just, I'm, I'm no good with the quiet time thing. Change it. Change it. 
You, that, that, is a, that is not an acceptable excuse. I realize some of us are, are just wired so that we can sit down and we can just spend time with, with people and we like the quietness of the moment. Others like to get up and, and, and move. I'm a like to get up and move kind of a guy. I like to, I mean, I, it's hard for me. I go on vacation, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to rest. Okay, it's noon, I think I'm rested. Let's go do something now. That, that's me. And I'm, you know, and I've got to learn to slow it down. I've got to take the time to go and, and just be alone. And so I can tell you as one that's like that, it's the first thing in the morning before the things get going. And if I don't have it then, it's going to be really hard to get it because I, I have a hard time stopping and going and doing that. So whatever you have to do to sit and be alone with the Lord, you got to do that. And so there are things that maybe you got to cut out of your life. Well, I can't because I'm just too tired in the morning. I had a friend say to me, a good quiet time starts the night before when you go to bed at a decent hour. Maybe you got to change that. Well, I got to stay up late. Well, maybe you got to redeem your time in the afternoon better. You know, you know, like just get distracted. Well, yeah, I mean, if you've gone through the whole day and you're, you're you know, just watched, you know, three hours of, you know, senseless things. I'm not even saying sinful, just senseless things. And your mind is all caught up in a drama or it's all caught up in some action movie or something like that. Something you're wanting to purchase and you're just all the brain is working on that. And now you're like, okay, time to have a quiet time. I don't know, maybe you can flip the switch and it just goes right over there. I can't do that. I mean, I've got I've to wrestle it down. You know, I've got to bring myself into submission. And it, Rebecca can tell you this. On like Saturday nights, you know, I, I, I just like to really start to limit everything that's coming into, into my mind. Because I am, you know, one that gets distracted easy. Squirrel, yes, that's me. Okay, I mean... I, and so I've got, I've got to just push everything out so that I can focus my mind on, on, on the word and the preparation that I've done, the preparation I'm going to do. So walk with God. And if you've got to change the way life is going so that you can meet with God and concentrate, you've got to do it, and it's worth it. A couple other verses moving on about Enoch are found in the New Testament. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but Enoch... Um, is found in the New Testament. Jude, verses 14 and 15, um, calls him a prophet. It says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes. So here's the prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. He's talking about this, the, the coming of the Lord. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among whom, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I, I think we get a little glimpse here into the way things were in the days of Enoch. The world was ungodly. And we'll see this in chapter 6, how ungodly it really was. But he was a prophet speaking of the coming of the Lord. Enoch was. In Hebrews, we read this, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. He pleased God. Oh, that that could be the, our, all of our testimonies, is that we please God. 
we walk after him. If you love me, keep my commandments. That pleases the Lord. To be found seeking the face of the Lord. That pleases God. And Enoch was that kind of a man. And he was taken. What is that? What do you mean, taken? He didn't die. He had his own, if you will, personal rapture. How about that? God was so pleased with this man that he's like, Enoch, come on up here. Just come on up. I think he was also uh, giving us a, a foreshadowing of the rapture that is talked about in Scripture. When a generation of believers will be alive and the Lord will catch that generation up into the air. And we'll read about that in just a moment. But the word means to take, to fetch, just as it's translated um, it's the same verb that was used of Elijah when he was caught up in the whirlwind. So 2 Kings chapter 2, if you want to read about that, another man that didn't die. So two men that had these personal raptures where they did not see death. But all of this is prefiguring a rapture that's going to happen to a bunch of people. So if you think this is pretty cool, that Enoch walked with God and then just kept on going... And was in the presence of the Lord and, um, and you know, outside of this earth and in, in the spirit there. Well, there's going to be, I think it'll be millions of Christians alive that are all going to experience this at one time. It's called the rapture. So Enoch is a type of the last generation church. Without touching the pre-trib, pre-mill, I'm pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, I am pre-trib, um, just so you can know, but without really getting into that, let's just read these verses that talk about the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, a wonderful passage of triumph and glory. Maybe some of the greatest verses in the New Testament. Um, write about this event that is going to come that a generation in the church will experience. Is it going to be our generation? It might be. I'm hoping so. There's some guy that's saying that Jesus is going to come back by uh, May 14th, uh, 2021. He doesn't know. The Bible says he doesn't know. But he's saying yeah, it's going to happen before then. I hope he's right. I mean, I hope he's wrong, but I also hope he's right. You know what I mean? I hope he's wrong because he shouldn't be doing things like that. But I hope he's right. I would love for him to be right. But we don't know the day or the hour. But I know that every generation should live with that anticipation. Let's read these verses. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven in this body. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So there's going to be, obviously there's many generations of believers that have died and have gone to be in the presence of the Lord. They are without their, their, their resurrected bodies yet. 
And there's going to be a generation that's alive that at the coming of the Lord, at this, the sounding of the trumpet, we will be caught up and we will receive our new bodies right after those that have gone before in Christ receive their new bodies. And this is a rapture. It's going to happen for real. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's not like it's going to be a, you know, a 12-hour event. I mean, it's going to happen that fast. As soon as you hear the, the, you know, the first you know, sound wave of the trumpet, you will be in your new body in the presence of the Lord. You're going to be impressed with the Lord and your new body. It'll be a body like the Lord's. And this is something that's coming, that's going to happen. Could you imagine if this was to happen this week? Pretty nice. I mean, the deliverance that's going to come, for some of you, you have some real health issues. For others of you, you're, you're, you have some real difficulties. Um, but anxiety and fears of what's going to come. Others of you are dealing with, um, you know, terrible concerns about finances, all that's going to be gone. But think about the impact that this would have upon the earth right now. What would happen to America if every believer was gone in an instant without warning? What would happen to the world? Chaos. Think about the chaos that happened on 9-11 when a handful of really... Um, important people um, died within the financial institution and the Pentagon. It had a profound impact upon this country. Imagine not thousands, but hundreds of thousands of believers all being gone at once. And um, I think this is a perfect setup for the Antichrist to come in in the sense of chaos and uh, disarray and to try and make sense of it all. Another passage that speaks about this event, the rapture, is 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's going to be a catching up. There's going to be a taking away. There's going to be a fetching that takes place for a generation in the church. I hope we're that generation. I, I, I'm, I think it would be a, bam, what an experience to hear that trumpet and to hear the voice of the Lord say, come up here. Yeah, but you know, every generation of the church has anticipated the coming. You're right. As actually... The very first woman on planet Earth expected the coming of the Lord in her day. That, that capital C, that one that would come, Genesis 3.15. She thought, she thought that Abel was going to be the one. But then Abel was gone and Cain was driven out from the presence of the Lord. Oh, he's given me another man and Seth. This will be the one. And she lived with that hope. We're going to read in just a moment. I mean, obviously, uh, Enoch, too, prophesying about the coming of the Lord, thinking about the coming of that seed. He anticipated it. And we're going to see another individual here in just a moment, Lamech, the father of Noah. He was groaning and waiting for the coming of the Lord. <laughs> Listen, every generation, every follower of the Lord should be living with a hope and an expectation that he's coming back. The first century church lived with the hope and expectation that the Lord was going to come back in their day. Behold, he's standing at the door. 
Look, you know, your redemption draws near. Hasten the coming of the Lord. The judge is at the door. All of these words and phrases speak of an expectation. Well, yeah, but what if I live my entire life expecting that Jesus is going to come and then I end up dying and he hasn't come? Well, he's come, just come in a different way. You've gone to him. I don't think anybody's going to stand before the Lord and say, oh, I was thinking the rapture was going to come. I would have lived my life entirely different. I wouldn't have lived for you. I wouldn't have set my goals upon the kingdom. What a waste. Oh, no. You'll be before the Lord. And what Jesus has said in Revelation is, behold, I am coming and my reward is with me. I'm not into rewards. Well, change your attitude because Jesus is. He's really into them. He talks about them all the time in the New Testament. As coming with the reward. And those that are found walking with God and pleasing God will be rewarded. And hear the words of Jesus saying, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't know if Jesus gives high fives, but it's that kind of moment, you know? It's like, you, did, you lived your life so well. You, did, you lived it the way I called you. You set me as your, your Lord and Savior. and You followed me. And, and 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you abounded in the work of the Lord. You remained steadfast and immovable. Come on in. And here's my reward. Oh, you're not going to be sorry that you lived with an expectation. Every believer should live with the expectation that Jesus could come back now. That's how we are called to live. So Enoch, a lot to glean from his life. He had a son named Methuselah. Now Enoch was a man that walked with God. Enoch was a prophet. And he named his son Methuselah. Now his name, I don't want to be, I don't want to overpreach it, but one common belief of his name is that it was when he is dead, it shall be sent. Great name, huh? What in the world does that mean? Well, Methuselah. And the year that he died, the flood was sent. And here's the thing about Methuselah. You see up there on the screen that God shows patience. Nobody lived longer on planet Earth than Methuselah. God was patient and waited. There was a prophecy that evidently Enoch was given that when his son um, dies, something significant is going to take place. And we know what that was. It was judgment upon this earth. Enoch prophesied about the coming judgment, didn't he? So we see this connection of of, um, Enoch and Methuselah and end-time events. 969 years the Lord waited. Some people say, you know, I don't know if I really believe in the Lord because you guys have been talking about Jesus coming back and he's been gone for like 1,900 years or something. Don't you think maybe this really is not something you should be hoping in? No, because we were... Although we are told to live expectantly, we are also told that God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. This is an interesting passage. Turn over there with me to it. Because in this passage it talks about the flood and it talks about the next judgment that is to come. And in both of these we see the patience of God. Today we see the patience in the Lord not coming yet. In the first judgment we see the patience and extending the life of this man to be longer than anybody else because God wasn't wanting to judge. Let's read, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, I now write you this second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds 
by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of, our, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Not true. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and, God, and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is patiently waiting to come back, that more might come in. Hey, a high price was paid by Jesus at the cross. His blood was spilled that he might redeem. And God wants to get the full return on his investment. There are still those that are coming. Every day that the Lord waits, there are more that are coming into the kingdom. More are coming into faith. And Jesus is receiving more of that reward of his suffering, the salvation of the souls of men and women. And so the Father waits. Yeah, but I'm ready now. Yeah, but what have you been ready 60 years ago? I'm glad the Lord didn't come back 60 years ago. I wouldn't have even been born. I'm glad that he waited. I'm glad that he has been patient. And it's interesting. We are patient up until we get saved, and then we're like, we're done with it. But unless you have a loved one that you're wanting to see come to faith, and then you really treasure that patience of the Lord, waiting to see them turn. So God is patient in our day. He's not slack. Oh, it's been so long. It's not even been two days for Jesus. He dwells outside of time. He has a different way of counting and measuring time. And he's waiting. But what's he waiting for? Maybe you. He's waiting for you to get saved. He's waiting for you to come and, re and repent and find that forgiveness. Because he does not want to judge. In Noah's day, God was patiently waiting. He was waiting and he extended the life of Methuselah because when he died, it was coming. And in the year that Methuselah died, the flood came. We wrap it up here by looking at Noah and Lamech in verses 28 through 32. And here we see that God preserves mankind through Noah. And Lamech is hoping for this. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah. Now, whatever his name meant, this is what he's hoping for in Noah. This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. So the ground was cursed when Adam and Eve sinned. Lamech is living out that curse. Adam and Eve knew day seven. What's day seven? The day of rest. Adam and Eve knew day seven. Lamech did not know day seven. He knows toil and he knows labor. And we hear the groaning of this man that's under that curse. 
And he's longing. And the Spirit of the Lord indicated to him that this child that he was going to have, Noah, was going to be special. And indeed, he was special. What he hoped for was that this would be the answer of the prophecy found in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman would come and destroy the head of the serpent, thus reversing the curse and bringing in rest again. But that is not going to happen through Noah. Yet Noah does serve as a forerunner, right? One that prefigures the Lord. Because in Noah, salvation will come through the ark that he's going to build and the preservation of mankind. And some will escape the judgment. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus Christ came and he took in his body upon the tree the sins of the world. And those that put their faith and trust in him will escape the judgment. Jesus offers to us that true rest. Jesus relieves us of that curse. So Lamech was groaning. And we all groan in different ways. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 8. There's a, there's a groaning that we all make. And, and Paul writes about that groaning. Not only do we make as believers, but all of mankind makes. And not even all of mankind. Even the earth is groaning for redemption. In Romans 8 verse 20 it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Have you groaned lately for the coming of the Lord, for a new body? Probably some of you are like, yeah, I did it this morning when I got out of bed. I was groaning. When I tied my shoes, I was groaning. There's a groaning that happens. And so there's a groaning that happens on different levels. Lamech's groaning was for, for there to be rest. The most significant groan that the world utters, and they're not all the same, is that groan of separation from God, and they often don't even know that that's what it is. There's a longing, there's a restlessness, there's a searching, there's a hunger, there's a thirsting that's going on. And they try to fill that and try to bring a, a, a ease to that groaning through all kinds of different pursuits. But there is only one way that that groaning will ever be satisfied, and it's through coming to Jesus Christ. Lamech was groaning and waiting for that one that was promised in Genesis 3.15, and that one is Jesus. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 11.28? I think I've quoted this every study in Genesis so far. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. The Lord wants to give you rest. He wants to bring it into this turmoil, this deep longing and aching in your soul. You don't even know what it's for, but here the Lord is saying, I will give you rest. You need to come. Sin is a terrible taskmaster. And the separation that it brings between you and God, between mankind and God, it causes us to groan. Maybe you've never known that before right now. Why does life feel like this? And that's that groan like Lamech. And the answer is, Come to Jesus. Come today and receive that forgiveness of sins. Receive that fullness of life. 
Noah provided an escape from judgment. An escape from the hand of the Lord for a few. And so it is with Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17. This is the last verse and we close here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him, in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus and in no other. Now maybe you are of those who are, have tasted of the first fruits and there's still that, that groaning. You're looking for the redemption to be wrapped up. Yeah, we should be. We should be longing for that day when the Lord will come and he is coming soon. And our, his return is nearer than when we first believed. And I'm getting older and getting closer to the day I'm going to depart. And his return is getting closer. I don't know who's going to cross that line first. But that one of us is going to cross that line. And only so much time is left to live for the Lord. Be an Enoch that walks with God. Giving yourself entirely dedicated and consecrated to his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of salvation. We thank you for the, the great picture that you've painted of salvation, last days, rapture, even in a genealogy. Lord, you're quite the author. And Lord, it resonates within us. We long to be fully adopted and redeemed as you came to redeem us. We love the first fruits, but Lord, we wait, we're waiting for it to be wrapped up. And we say, even so, Lord, come quickly.